Amen. Let's turn to the Psalms. We are in Psalm 18. Psalm 18. You notice that Psalm 18 is a very lengthy psalm. 50 verse, yeah, 50 verses. While I am tempted to read all 50 verses this morning, we won't do that. Just to, to get us started and to get us anchored on the word, we'll just read the first six verses. Psalm 18, picking up in verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, you are indeed worthy to be praised. And Father, help us to look to your word this morning. Lord, we do not have the time to, to swim deeply in just the enormity of this psalm. Lord, would you help me to just draw out specific themes in this psalm that we might have a much more comprehensive, maybe not a full comprehensive, but a somewhat comprehensive understanding of what's going on in this psalm. Lord, help us to receive your word through your spirit with humility and also with an eagerness. And then all things that you might be praised, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to promises, promises are sort of, can be sort of an IOU or kind of a, a ledger or maybe even kind of a sort of a down payment of a commitment to fulfill. But even thinking about it in that sense can seem sort of too transactional because oftentimes promises are more than that. Promises oftentimes are about relationship. They're about one's character. They're about integrity. They're about faithfulness. It is these things that give us a measure of confidence when somebody gives us their word or makes a promise to us. Or in turn, when we give our word to someone or give our promise to someone, there's a, a measure of confidence, not just in the word, but in the person as well, considering their character, their integrity, their faithfulness. And keeping your word is vital to any kind of meaningful relationship. And when we come to the scriptures, one of the primary ways that God 
relates to his people is through the giving of promises. We see this all throughout biblical history. We see this in Adam, Abraham, Noah, David, and even Jesus. Psalm 18 points us to one of God's most foundational and precious promises and its fulfillment. But before we get there, we should consider the faithfulness of God as one of the primary foundations of his character as he relates to his people. So as we turn to the psalm, first consider God's faithfulness as the ground of prayer. So God's faithfulness as the ground of prayer, meaning that what grounds our prayer and what grounds the, the psalmist's prayer is God's faithfulness. Right? The reason that, why we can have any measure of confidence or assurance when we pray to God that God actually listens to us with an intention of responding is that God is a faithful God and that he is faithful to his people. Psalm 18 is a psalm of reflection. This is King David looking back at the events of his life. And what he considers or what he remembers is time and time and time again going before the Lord, calling out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord, trusting that God, because he is faithful to his people, will come through and deliver his servant. So faith is absolutely essential. If we want to see the faithfulness of God in action in our lives, well, we must believe. We must trust. Put our faith in the Lord. What makes a Christian resilient under the pressures of affliction is faith. What makes a Christian endure hardship is faith. What makes a Christian hopeful in hopelessness is faith. Faith in the Lord, faith in the God who delivers and remains with his people. It was by faith that Noah was spared from the diluvian judgment of the wrath of God. It was by faith that Abraham received his promised child. It was by faith that Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt. It was by faith that insurmountable obstacles were overcome that many escaped, escaped the edge of the sword, and even the dead were raised back to life. And let's also not forget how essential and fundamental faith is when it comes to salvation. Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, so it is faith. That saves us. Not faith itself, but faith in an object, faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross. So it is in him that we put our faith and trust him. But James chapter 1 also warns us when it comes to prayer and it comes to faith, it warns us about doubting. James 1.6 tells us, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
Now, this is the context of giving wisdom and God giving generously to those who ask for wisdom. But the warning here still applies when it comes to praying and trusting in the Lord, that those who pray and trust in the Lord, they must actually trust in the Lord and put their faith in Him. But to doubt the Lord is to doubt His character. To doubt is to doubt that God cannot deliver or that God maybe cannot deliver or that God might not be faithful to His people. And so when we pray, we must make sure that we are doing so in faith. For to pray without faith is like writing a letter and addressing the envelope and sending it away and having it returned to you because there's no stamp on the envelope. So as the psalmist looks back at the events of his life, he sees a pattern of God's faithfulness in his life, and that is because he continually puts his faith in the Lord. Since the cords of death encompassed him, destruction was at his side, shield entangled him, the snares of death confronted him. He says he calls upon the Lord, in his distress he cried out to the Lord, and it says that from his temple, God heard the cries of his king. And then we see the Lord's earth-shattering response. It still says that the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the mountains trembled, smoke went up from the nostrils of the Lord, devouring, devouring fire from his mouth. And those thick clouds, dark, and there was lightning as well, that the Lord thundered from the heavens. All this is intended to spark imagery in our minds to see how God responds to the prayers of his king. He's coming to the aid of his servant. So what we see at the very least is not a lazy response. The Lord isn't like, I'll be right there, David. Just give me a few minutes. I'll be right there. No, it's an immediate response. Because it's a picture of a sort of a, a fire-breathing dragon in response to the prayers of his afflicted. He says in verse 15, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. I think perhaps, perhaps intended to remind us of the Exodus. I think it's the picture here. To remind us of the colossal event of Jesus or of the Lord warring against the gods of Egypt and against Pharaoh himself to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And as colossal as that event was, so is the Lord's response to his anointed. And then verse 16, he says, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. I think this also points us to Moses' deliverance when Pharaoh's edict to kill the male children in the land of Egypt, Moses, the child Moses, was placed in a basket and put in the waters and then drew out. So in the same way, the psalmist seems to be saying that the Lord drew him out of those waters, almost likening himself to a kind of Moses. And in a way, he was. Just as Moses provided deliverance for the people of God, so David 
used mightily by God to continue to bring deliverance for the people of God time and time and time again. And the Lord's response to his afflicted king is tethered in David's blamelessness, so it seems. Verse 20, King David continued, he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. So here we go again with one of these problematic statements that David makes about his blamelessness. I think it was Psalm 17 where he says similarly, and there's other places as well, where he continues to point to his own blamelessness. Right? Immediately our reaction is, bro, you're the last one to be saying that you're blameless. David continues, again, he's reflecting on his life and what he sees and he knows in himself is a general pattern of his life. And when thinking about the word blamelessness and what does this mean, because I really don't think there's anybody else out in the scriptures who continues to point to his own blamelessness than David does. And yet he is one who, whose sins we are so familiar with. But blamelessness, I think it's helpful to think about blamelessness. I think it's helpful to think about sincerity when it comes to blamelessness. As I said before, blamelessness does not mean sinlessness in the Scriptures. But what we see in David's life, the pattern of his life is one of sincerity, meaning that he had a sincerity when it comes to worship, the worship of God. That throughout his life, his heart was sincere in his desire to worship the Lord. That even in his sin, in his being confronted with his sin, there was insincerity to get right with God. That's essentially what blamelessness is about. There is a sincerity that even when we sin against God, that there is a desire for us to get right with God by confessing our sins to the Lord and repenting of our sins. It's a sincerity of worship that leads to right living, to the honor of God. But interestingly, it's not like the scriptures have forgotten the sins of David, for it says in 1 Kings 15.4, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did, affirming what David himself believes, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. The man he murdered to take his wife. So interestingly, even the scriptures affirm that David is a blameless individual. As I said, a psalm of reflection, the psalmist is reflecting on his life and what he sees is a pattern of God's faithfulness throughout his life. And this is helpful for us. There's something for us to take away from what King David is doing. It can be a means of grace 
to the saints to reflect on his own or her own life and consider the faithfulness of God in the past to strengthen our hope in the present. To remind ourselves the ways in which God has been good and faithful to us and has answered our prayers can be an incredible means of encouragement when we are struggling today. And it is God's continued perse- God's continued provision and deliverance over his life that gives him sort of this confidence that he has been doing rightly in the eyes of the Lord. That God continues to deliver time and time again gives the psalmist this confidence that God is pleased with him. I remember feeling similarly years ago, right before my wife and I moved to Kentucky for me to go to seminary, which was a very painful decision for us to make. But prior to that, we served in our church, and we were in this internship, and there was part of this internship was having this church from Tennessee come up to, and partner with us and to help serve our community. And so we got to know this individual, this, this ministry leader, pretty well. And then after that was done, summer's over, we moved down to, to Kentucky. Only days later, this, this man that we come to know through this missions partnership came with, he rallied a bunch of people in his church, came up, drove up several cars with a trailer, and at the time, I mean, uh, all seminary students are, are broke, and we had very little money with us. I mean, all we traveled with was all the things that we could carry in two cars, and friends came down with us. And this man rallied people together, came up, and furnished our entire apartment almost entirely, put food in our cabinets, food in our fridge, and gave us a bunch of gift cards to be able to go buy groceries. And I just remember thinking to myself at that time of how good the Lord has been and having this sense of assurance that, yes, I can see now without fail, without a degree of doubt that this is where we're supposed to be. Right, sometimes life is like that. When you have, you're just called to obedience, you're called to go and you're just called to go. You're called to do and just called to do. And you, have no, you don't know the details. You don't know how things will turn out. You don't know how you're going to figure things out. You, don't, you have all these unanswered questions. Sometimes the Lord just calls you to have faith and just go. And when you're faithful and you do what is right, the Lord gives you these this assurance by delivering and providing and answering prayers to give you this degree of confidence in knowing that you have been faithful. So as we move close to a particular promise that God has made and God's fulfilling that promise, the second thing to consider is God's faithfulness as the ground of deliverance that we can expect or have any degree of assurance that God might be faithful to us and answer our prayers and deliver us when we need deliverance, what grounds that or gives us any confidence is that God is a faithful God and will always be faithful to his people. Verse 25, With the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless 
you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The Lord is a faithful God, and he shows himself faithful in his relationship with his people. It's as if the Lord continues to shine his face upon his anointed king and continue to dispense his favor, like it says in Numbers that most of us are familiar, familiar with. Right, but the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is the psalmist's experience because of his close relationship with the Lord. In Luke 18, a parable that speaks to prayer but also speaks to relationship as well, Jesus tells the parable to the effect that we are always to pray and not lose heart. He says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Right, the parable concerns prayer and that we should not give up in praying and not lose heart, but it also speaks to relationship as well. And there's a contrast here. The judge doesn't fear God. The judge, who is called to administer justice to those who are desperate for justice, doesn't actually want to give justice, but only gives justice because this widow keeps pestering him. And the contrast there is that God is a loving Father who is not like this judge. But he's a merciful and gracious and loving father. It's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? The Lord is good to his people. And he's always faithful to his people. And faithfulness is essential to any good relationship. Faithfulness is the cement that holds the relationship together. We consider the gospel itself. In Hosea, one of the minor prophets, Hosea is called to, to be married to someone who would be unfaithful to him. That's exactly what happens. She goes after other lovers, and then he finds her in the marketplace to be sold, and God commands him to buy her back in order to give God's people a vivid image of God's faithfulness to his people, even though they turn away after other lovers. And the great problem of the scriptures is how does God reconcile man back to himself? Though man is adulterous, though man is wayward, Though man is sinful and deserving of the judgment of God, how can God reconcile man to himself? Right? And we know that the answer is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world, who is blameless, who always was blameless, and was at the same time sinless, 
and died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that all who believe in him might be reconciled to God. So they might be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bond that cements us to God. King David had a relationship with God through faith. And it is this faith in the faithfulness of God that cemented that relationship together. And that faith in God's faithfulness resulted in victory over his enemies. He says that the way of the Lord is perfect. And interestingly, at least I find it interesting, is that the Hebrew word there for perfect is the same word for blameless earlier in this psalm. It is a word that means that lacks nothing. So he says that the way of the Lord is perfect. It means that God's ways lack nothing. Whatever God intends in his work, he always fulfills his purpose in it. And as you continue in the passage, it says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation at your right hand, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed." So he says he pursues, he's thrust his enemies, he beats them down as fine as dust, and that they even cry out to the Lord, and the Lord does not answer them. Sometimes the way in which God delivers his people is by completely changing their situation. Perhaps it might be changing someone's heart. But sometimes the way in which God delivers his people is by just equipping them to do what they're called to do. Maybe strengthening your hands. Maybe it's encouraging you or giving you the courage to have those difficult conversations. Maybe it's giving you the wisdom that you need. As the psalmist reflects on his life, a way in which God continued to deliver him and be faithful to him is by equipping the king to continue to protect the people of God and providing deliverance. And as David reflects on his life and these victories, he's not like the pagan kings who might reflect on their life and reflect on their victories and give credit to themselves and build monuments and images for themselves that, paint, that point to themselves. But David is nothing like that. The legacy that he leaves behind through God's inspired word is the legacy of God's faithfulness. It's God's pattern of continuing to be with his people time and time again. As we think about ourselves, as you think about your own life, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? The kind of legacy you want to leave behind is the things that you've done in your life, perhaps accomplishments, places that you've visited, things that you've done. 
and that may be fine and good, but how about considering leaving a legacy behind of how God has been faithful to you time and time again? What kind of story will you tell? What kind of story will you tell your children for those who have children in the home? Right, as parents with children in the home, one of the most important and foundational and, and precious legacies that we can leave our children is, a, is multi-generational faithfulness. It's instructing our children in the ways of the Lord, to helping them to understand the God that we worship and calling them to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Aside from that, what other stories would you leave behind for your children to be passed down from one generation to another generation? Will you tell the younger generations of how God has been good to you through the years of your life, how God has answered prayer, how God has delivered you, how God has provided for you? Those are the kind of stories that are worth sharing and worth transferring. It's the kind of legacy we should look to leave behind. What we also see in his personal reflection in this psalm is that foreigners obey. Verse 44, as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Now this is significant because this leads us to the final point, which we'll get to very soon. But what we see here is that God makes the enemies of David subservient to him. So that God even brings other nations to pay homage to the king, just by hearing of the king. When Alexander the Great went about and tried to conquer the known world, there were a lot of battles that he did not have to fight because people had just heard of him. They heard of his might and of his prowess, and they just willingly came and submitted to him. It's the same idea here that King David goes about and he defeats the Philistines time and time again, and no nation is able to conquer the Israelites under King David's leadership because God has strengthened his hand, and what happens is that other nations begin to hear about King David and the Israelites, but more so, they also hear about the God who is with the king. And that they don't even try to put up a fight. Instead, they just willingly submit. What I think of, when I think about this passage, I think of Romans 8.37, where it tells us that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To be more than a conqueror is to be one who conquers his enemy, but also makes them their slave. And the promise here in Romans 8.37 is that when it comes to sin, when it comes to trials, when it comes to affliction, when it comes to suffering, that Christians already have the victory in Christ Jesus and that they are more than conquerors because God even uses those things to be subservient to his people and works them to the good of his people. The same idea in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where it says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, God is able to take our afflictions and distress 
and actually make them servant of us in order to do us good for our glory. Kind of an extreme example of this, I think, is seen in the life of Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was actually discipled by the Apostle John himself. And during his time, there was an intense persecution of Christians. And the Roman authorities finally caught up with Polycarp. They arrested him and they brought him to the Colosseum, where they executed Christians. Now, the proconsul and others thought it was kind of senseless to, to make a martyr of an aged man. And so they gave him plenty of chances to recant, to say that you swear under Caesar. And every time he would not, at one of those instances, they asked him, just look to the Christians. And they considered the Christians to be atheists because they did not worship the gods of Rome and they did not worship the Roman emperor. They said, just to give him another chance, just look to the Christians and just say, away with the atheists. Instead, he looks at the jeering mob who is asking for his head and says, away with the atheists. That man gained for himself a wonderful eternal weight of glory. It was an intense time of affliction. He was burned at the stake. And yet God, according to his word, because this is what this word promises us, God used, we can rest assured that God used that time of affliction in Polycarp's life to bring about good. Maybe not good in this life, but certainly good in the afterlife, in the paradise of God. So having considered God's faithfulness as the ground of prayer and deliverance, we come to what such faithfulness wonderfully and gloriously produces. So we consider this psalm. So thirdly, God's faithfulness as the ground of promise-keeping. The psalm 18 is a psalm of reflection, and it's actually adapted from 2 Samuel 22. It's been adapted in Psalm 18 to be a congregational song. So these are the words from a man who considers his life and considers God's faithfulness and has been adapted to be a song to be sung by God's people. And the reason why David was the object of God's faithfulness and God's deliverance was because of the Lord's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, tells us of this covenant. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have caught off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges of my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So very early on, God is covenanting with David. He's making a promise to David. 
At that point, he has cut off all his enemies, and he, continue, and he promises that he will continue to be with his servant, and that he will establish his house. We see a, re, a, a repeat or a reiteration of, of this covenant with David in Psalm 89, verse 3. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So God has made a promise to David, a covenant, a pact that his line will be established, that as long as there is a throne, people from his line will continue to occupy that throne. And the promise is forever. It is because of this covenant that God made with David that God continues to provide deliverance for his chosen servant time and time and time again. And when God covenants with a person, it is a way of his adopting them as a son or as a child. In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses pleads to Pharaoh to let God's people go, he calls God's people God's firstborn son. The king who represented the people is also considered a son of God. In Psalm 2, we see this. In Psalm 80, and this isn't unique to the Israelites and God's covenant people and the surrounding pagan nations. People also identified the king or the ruler as a son of God. Though they meant a pagan god. And because God is a faithful God and continues to keep covenant with his servant is the reason why he continues to keep his promise even though Throughout David's lineage, there is a lot of disobedience and transgression and rebellion and sin. 2 Kings 8, 19, it says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Though Judah deserves the judgment of God, God was unwilling to destroy because he made a covenant with David that his sons should forever be on the throne. But this promise that God made to David actually stretches back further than David. It originates much earlier than that. And that there's a promise to Abraham. And we see some elements that are the same with God's covenant with David. Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But God covenants with Abram. He's adopting him, in a sense, as a son. And what we see is that he promises Abram, or Abraham, that he will make of him a great nation. And that great nation came to be Israel who is considered to be God's firstborn son. There's the promise of a great name, a promise repeated to David as well in his covenant as a son of God. And there's a promise that all the families of the earth 
would be blessed. And what we see in Psalm 18 is that there are foreigners, there are those outside of the covenant of Israel who are coming to Israel. And it tells us at the end of this psalm that the King David, he praises the name of God amongst the nations. The nations are hearing of this God who is faithful to his people. And this then takes us to the other end of this promise. We look to Jesus Christ, where it tells us in Matthew 3.17, after Jesus comes out of the baptismal waters, it says, from heaven, this is my beloved Son, the Lord says, with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus sort of is representative of Abraham, is representative of King David, is representative of the people of Israel. Jesus is the Son of God. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What this passage tells us is that Jesus comes from the line of David, which we see in the Gospels and tracing the genealogy of Jesus, that he is actually from the line of David. So God is fulfilling his promise to David that he will always have a son on the throne. And then we have Jesus as the Son of God, the fulfillment of that promise, who will forever sit on that throne. It tells us in Philippians 2.9, that God has highly exalted him and has named or bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There's a promise that the nations will bow down to worship the name of Jesus Christ, a promise to make Abraham's name great, a promise to make David's name great, and now Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise, and the inheritor of that promise, his name is made great as a son of David, and as a son of God. And the result of God's keeping his promises and being faithful to keep his promises is what you have before you today, and that is the church of the living God. Because what does the Bible say about God's people? How are they identified? Romans 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God has been faithful to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David, to Jesus, and even fulfilled today in the church of God, filled with sons and daughters of God. Very quickly, in response, what is our response? One way of response is just to worship. We worship the Lord because He is faithful. We worship God because He is a God who makes promises and always delivers on His promises. Because He is a God who is faithful, we worship Him 
And this gives us confidence in knowing that God will continue to be faithful to his people. So we worship and we proclaim. And so God makes us a part of this great promise by calling us to go among the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that God has commanded. God intends to use his people to go amongst the nations, to bring the nations to come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear of God's faithfulness, to hear of his forgiveness, to hear of his mercy. So we give ourselves to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go and do our work in the Great Commission and we preach the gospel to those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it also means that we go and pursue planting churches. I think planting churches is an effective way of continuing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our church, decades ago, planted a church in New Hampshire. I think we should recapture that vision and head in that direction of continuing to plant churches, that God would see fit to give us men that would be called to pastors that to go out and send people and send resources to go and plant churches, whether it is in the country or outside of the country, to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we should continue to give ourselves to missions, that God would see fit to call people within our own midst to go and give their lives to missions, to proclaim the gospel to those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ, that we will continue to send, that we will continue to give, that we will continue also to go. Not just for the sake of church planting, not just for the sake of sending people for missions, but for the sake of the great name of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. And lastly, Familiarize yourself with the promises of God. Become acquainted with the promises that are written for you in the Scriptures. In Homer's The Odyssey, Odysseus is on his long voyage to try to get back home, and he's on the seas with the sailors, and he's been warned that on the seas there are sirens that intend to allure the sailors into their doom. So they've been warned. They said, put in some beeswax into your ears to plug your ears so they may not listen to the sirens. But if you wish to hear the sirens, then have your men, Odysseus, tie you to the mast of the ship. Sometimes we can't help but hear the noises of the world and be allured by its temptations, beckoning us, calling to us to forsake the God who has loved us so dearly and so much. The promises of God are there for your encouragement and for your strengthening. Use the promises of God as a way to, to tie yourself. The promises of God as, uh, as a mast to tie yourself to so that you may not be tempted and allured and enticed by the things of the world. Acquaint yourself with the promises of God. Read them, study them, pray them for your encouragement. The Lord has been faithful in keeping his promise. And he continues to keep his promises to his people, even to this very day. And every day we gather as a reminder to us that God is faithful, that God will always deliver on his promises, that God will always be with us. So let us in turn 
be faithful unto Him. Let us continue to pursue the Lord, to cast our cares upon the Lord Jesus, to continue to pray to Him in faith. If we continue to cast our cares and cast our lives upon the Lord in faith, God will continue to provide and deliver according to His timetable and according to the ways He sees fit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you because when we think about the faithfulness of God, you are that faithfulness of God. You've come into the world. You died on the cross for our sins. so that we may receive eternal life and be reconciled to God. You are a promise-keeping God. There is no other God like you. There is no other God besides you. Help us to rest in your faithfulness. Help us to rest in your promises. Help us to encourage one another with the promises that are written in your word. Lord, we trust you for these things. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.